silence for two and a half hours after we get home. The second... Waiting for the fucking airplane. <laughs> the second we start recording, Luna's screaming, there's an airplane going overhead, it just seems like everything is going wrong. Almost like this podcast is... cursed. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are with another episode of soon to be a major motion podcast. I am Billy Beck. I am Cody Beck. Mouth full of soda. Yep. <laughs> did not plan that well at all. Cody, how have you been since we last did one of these? Uh, oh Lord, I don't even remember how long it's been. It's been two weeks almost exactly. Uh... We we had a hurricane. Oh yeah, we survived the hurricane. <laughs> um, you didn't even feel the earthquake. No, I didn't. <laughs> Straight up, just did not feel the earthquake. <laughs> At work, my boss today was like checking inventory to make sure nothing was damaged by the events, and I was like, "Bro, the earthquake wasn't bad enough to do anything." He's like. The water my pool was sloshing. I thought I got rear-ended when I was in the drive-thru at El Pollo Loco. <laughs> I'm like, all right, yeah, you own a pool. <laughs> you know... He actually I, has a very nice house. He does. His house is lovely. Completely legitimate industry. <laughs> I did not realize that the Northridge earthquake, the, like, big one, that mm. was, like, a 6.8? Something like that. And but it was, was also, like, in Northridge. Yeah. This was out, like, Ohio. Yeah, and it was a 5.5. <laughs> yeah. So... I think the one that... Fourth of July a few years back was the worst I felt when we had the back to backs like the fourth and fifth of July. I think that one was the worst just because it was like a jolty one and not a not a shake. And it went for like thirty seconds. Yeah, that one was wild. And we, everyone was home because it was a holiday. Was that the one where I yelled at you to stop shaking the bed, or was that? <laughs> yeah, you were like, "Stop shaking the bed." I'm like, "I'm in another room. That's an earthquake." <laughs> Clearly, we know how to handle disasters. <laughs> yeah. Hurricane, though, we were in a, uh, a relatively unscathed area. I did see a downed tree on our street, but yeah. otherwise we were fine. I know some other areas of L.A. got jacked up. Um, the coast uh, south. I know, like, Baja, California got fucked up. Mm -hmm. I know San Diego County, some areas there got fucked up. Yeah. So we are blessed that we are safe. Yes. Did not really... Do much to us, not that we have much to lose. Yeah. Um, Just two upset cats all day yesterday. <laughs> yes, two very irritated cats that were upset with us for messing with the barometric pressure. <laughs> oh, that was your own head. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, besides the hurricane, how have you been since we last recorded? Oh, jeez. What have I been up to? Uh, World Cup's over. Spain won. Yay the players, boo the federation. Like, when... Was it 12 players in the Spanish Federation? 15, I thought. It's double digits players, including some of the best female players in the world. Yep. Refuse to play for their federation because of the way it treats players. And minutes after they win the World Cup, the president of the Spanish Federation kisses one of his players on the lips. It's fucking gross. Yeah. I get why they're protesting. Like, good on those players winning the damn thing. Fucking awesome. But... Federation's fucking gross. Can't stand it. But, um, um, this is also the first time since 94 that it's been not the, it, it's not a repeat winner. This is the first World Cup since the second World Cup without a repeat winner. Or the third World Cup. 
Something like that. No. Wait, no, that's not right. Because Japan wasn't a repeat winner. It's the first final since the first final where no one in the final has won it before. That's what it is. Oh. Or has been to the final before. One of the two. Yeah. Regardless. Because, like, the U.S. dominance has been so long and so... Uh, dominant? Yeah, dominant. <laughs> uh, mostly due to Title Nine and giving female athletes in this country the opportunity at such a young age to start their athletic journey has led to this period of dominance. But under that same model, the rest of the world has caught up. And it's not going to be the same anymore. I was listening to... Um, I want to say it was Julie Foudy on a podcast this morning. Love Julie Foudy. She's a hero. Um, she was saying that she doesn't think a three-peat will ever happen. This was the one chance for it to happen, and the U.S. blew it. She doesn't even think a repeat will happen again for a long time. That's how even the playing field is in the women's game now. And I fucking love it as a fan of the sport. I hate it as a fan of the U.S. women's national team. I, I like winning. Um, well, the women's national team can't always be Man City. Um, True. That's why I got City. <laughs> but it's also really interesting that we're... I know this isn't a soccer podcast, whatever, but like... Fuck it. <laughs> ACFC, the Angel City, the local women's team that we support, uh, four players went to three different nations, and they're all playing in on literally the same playing field in their league. Yeah. I had a point I was going to make. Something about how we've got champagne in the fridge from Vlatko retiring. It's not, a so yeah. it's not a soccer podcast that we're doing, but it is a huge part of my life. So, anyway. <laughs> that uh, League's Cup ended, too. That's uh, Lionel Messi won his first trophy, defeating my Philadelphia Union along the way. But, Union beat Monterey, going to the Champions Cup next year. Can't fucking wait to lose another cup in the semifinals. It's going to be great. <laughs> going to be fucking just the best. What was the What was the thing that you said when I I made a joke about putting Luna on you and you were like, "Oh no, I am on suicide watch." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that game against Miami was a rough night for me. <laughs> I'm just It's the like the one time the soccer world is going to be watching the Philadelphia Union, and it's because Messi's in town, and they played the worst game they played in five years. And then they come out against Monterey, and they score in 30 seconds. They win 3-0. They played like themselves, but it's a third-place game, so no one gave a shit. Just really pissed me off. I was really down that night. Um, But I digress. This is not a soccer podcast. <laughs> this is a book and movie podcast. Yes. Cody, what is the book and movie we're talking about tonight? We are talking about The Exorcist by William Peter Blatty. Uh, now I'm questioning his name. Uh, you're know. right. It's William Peter Blatty. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I listened to the audiobook recorded by the author, uh, the 40th edition. And I watched the film directed by William Friedkin uh, to piece. specify the 2000 edit of the film that's on dvd um i don't know if they call it the extended director's cut now or if that's a different version but i think that's the version i saw i saw the one with the casablanca ending ah yes not the original theatrical um i think it's about 10 minutes longer a couple scenes added but anyway 
Uh, Cody, how did you first come to know about The Exorcist? When did you first hear of it existing? Um, I mean, I feel like it's one of those things. I was a scaredy cat as a child. I was terrified. Like, Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island was too much for me as a child. Had legitimate nightmares from that movie. Um... I'm watching your judgment. I'm just trying not to laugh in your face. <laughs> um, but I I was terrified. So I knew that The Exorcist was like the scary movie. And of course I knew it was controversial and all that kind of stuff. But I knew very little about it. And I want to say that it was um, probably... It was probably only within the last five years that I knew that it was a book as well. Um, but yeah, I don't really have... You You and I watched it together a couple of years ago. And that's the first time I had seen it in its entirety. Um, I remember we were at a Halloween party at one of your friends' apartments. And um, it was on... But I don't think I had seen it in full at that point, or I had only seen it once years prior, and you hadn't seen it. And then I ended up watching it not too long after that. That tracks. Um, I also want to say that I did see whatever scary movie opened with the bedroom, the, the party pee scene and the bedroom scene parodies. Yes. Um, whatever scary movie that was, I saw that. Was Actually, that the. The same time that I saw The Princess Bride. I think that might be Scary Movie 3. <laughs> um, probably. I, we didn't, I was clearly freaked out, so my babysitter turned it off when we watched The Princess Bride instead. <laughs> Good choice. Good choice. Um. How did you, how were you introduced to The Exorcist, William? So, similar to Properties Past, I watched a lot of list TV shows in my youth, uh, because I was not allowed to watch the movies themselves. I feel like even your dad wouldn't have let you watch this one when, if he had to watch it. So, I don't remember the context. But I know I had just seen something that called The Exorcist one of the scary movies of all time or something. It was either that or seeing, I think it was Scary Movie 3 that opened with the pea soup. Ugh. Um, and my dad and I did talk about it. And I would have been in high school at this point, I think. And he mentioned that he saw it when it came out, and he said it was the scariest thing he's ever seen. He didn't explicitly tell me not to watch it, but I took that to mean, maybe I'll stay away from this for a bit. Fast forward to college. I discovered that our college uh, library had a DVD section. An extensive one. <laughs> it was fine. So... I took advantage of that and started checking out movies that were like pop culture touchstones. So that included Soylent Green. Just because like the Soylent Green is people bit, I needed to know the context for it. Spoilers. Oh my god. I'm going to put a spoiler tag in the description of this one. <laughs> just like Just Soylent like Green Soylent spoilers. Green. Why, are they, why is there a spoiler tag for Soylent Green on an Exorcist episode? <laughs> um, and another one that I grabbed from the library was The Exorcist. And I was like, cool, I'm going to watch this movie about the girl that gets possessed. And like the, the dude comes out of the taxi and stuff. 
And because my only other frame of reference for this movie was parody. And it was always parodying the pea soup or the um, the shot of him coming out of the taxi in front of the house. Like, the classic mm-hmm. look. When it opens with ten minutes in Iraq, I was like, did I put in the wrong movie? And I'm not going to lie. I got bored, and I never finished it. Fast forward years later... Um, I can't remember the first time I saw it in its entirety, but then we saw it at that party, and then I watched it a few times since then, and now obviously have seen it in full a handful of times. My dad thinks it's the scariest movie he's ever seen. I think my dad's a bitch. (laughs) I feel like there was also, specifically when we would have been in college together, I feel like there was also a big resurgence of exorcism-type movies, because I feel like... Like The Exorcism of Emily Rose, and The Last Exorcist, and like that shit was happening. Which is a sequel to this movie. This movie has like six sequels and two prequels. Yeah. It's insane. Um, But yeah, I feel like there was like a... Uh, not a renaissance, but I guess technically a renaissance of movies like that. Yeah, between like two thousand eight and twenty fifteen or so. Yeah, they, they were they were happening, but like, well, let's listen to a trailer before we start really talking about it. Somewhere between science and superstition. There is another world. The world of darkness. Nobody expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. There are no experts. Probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that. <laughs> One hope, the only hope, the exorcist. Let's get into it. So I think this might be the first time that the book and the movie are almost direct, like, like, Almost word for word. So, if I can point at the notes where I wrote down writer, <laughs> do you recognize the writer's name, Cody? Uh, I can't see. It's William Peter Black. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was, the screenwriter was the the author of the novel. Yes. Um. So, yeah, we're not going to get too much into plot details tonight because yeah. we're, we're expecting you, the listener. To at least have a passing familiarity with The Exorcist. Yeah. And since the book is basically the same thing, we're not going to waste your time. I do think this is a, a good example of the differences in medium. 
in that I feel like the the way that you what you're exploring in the book is different than what you're exploring in the movie. How so? The mo- the book is structured almost like a noir. Okay. Because it feels like the the driving force of the plot of the book is the murder of Burke Dennings. Okay. And it's kind of like it really honestly this is going to sound terrible but it really feels like who censored Roger Rabbit? Oh no. In that it's a noir with the supernatural element. Sure. Is it um shut the fuck up watch. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> every time. Every fucking time. Do, 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 do. Um, the um, perspective of the book. Is it is it third person, first person, third it, person limited? It is third person limited and it jumps perspectives from different people at different okay. times. Okay. Because I was like, if the whole book is from the perspective of the detective, <laughs> that would be fucking wild. No, you actually only get a little bit from his perspective, but okay. he shows up in everybody else's. Um, you get Chris, the mom, mm-hmm. um, portrayed by Ellen Burstyn in the movie, which of course, uh, you get Damien Karras. Yep. Uh, portrayed by Jason Miller. Uh, you get a brief, you, it's one of those things where you get like little bits and pieces from different, um, characters through like side characters, but the bulk is Chris and or Damien. Um, but you get a little bit from the introduction you get, excuse me, the introduction you get from Moran's perspective. Okay. That's the Iraq section. Yes. Um, and then you also get a little tiny bit from the, uh, uh, Swiss guy, the housekeeper. Oh, fuck. What's his name? I have it written down. Dennings? No, Dennings is the director. Dennings is the guy oh, that you're gets right. murdered. You're right. Um, oh my goodness, what is his name? Carl? Carl and Willie, right? Sure. Um, I'll take your word for it. Because I don't know where my phone is. And... <laughs> <laughs> um, Willie is a housekeeper. Carl is her husband, who is Swiss. And there is really weird anti like. I don't want to say it's anti-Semitic because it's it's the opposite of that. It's it's Nazi bashing. <laughs> oh yeah, because the the German guy that works for her. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, was he? Uh, he's said... actually Swiss. Oh, I just thought he was a German dude because the the he's... director of her movie comes in and just like like hiles at him and drunkenly calls him a killer and shit. Yeah. Um. Does. I don't I don't remember this from the movie per se, but um does the demon ever um take on his persona? Not his. Okay. That I remember. Okay. Because the demon takes on the persona of of course Damien's mother. Mm-hmm. Um Oh there's my phone. <laughs> it takes on um Burke Dennings. Mm-hmm. Um of course the demon itself. And then it also you've got Reagan. Yeah. We is it Reagan or Regan? Reagan. Because it's pronounced like both ways in the movie, depending on the character. She mostly refers to her as Rags as her nickname. Um, That's adorable. It is very cute. Um, but they Reagan, like the terrible president. Which is 
I wanted to like start like formulating a thing about how it's a critique of the Reagan presidency, but this came out in '73. <laughs> I feel like if anything, it's specifically to give both of them, both of those women, non. Uh, feminine names because yeah. you've got Chris and Reagan, and you contrast that with it, even the housekeeper is Willie, um, and then you've also got oh my goodness I can't remember whether her name is Sharon or Shannon, uh, the the secretary. But like, there's definitely something going on with Chris being like masculinized mm-hmm. and the way that that's played with like even in the end when the demon is abusing her it points out like oh well your career over everything your career over your husband your career over your daughter and we know he was doing something with names i mean karis's first name is damien i was so annoyed you were so mad so annoyed like oh, a little on the nose there Vladdy. <sighs> so the character names the theme I wanted to talk about tonight is, is this movie slash book feminist or anti-feminist? Because <laughs> there are conflicting theories about this. One, look at this uppity child becoming a woman and acting crazy. Let's bring the men in to shut her down. The men are the good guys. The patriarchy of the church is good. That's one argument. The other argument is Pazuzu's a woman. Or speaks with a female voice at points. She comes in. Gives this child agency. Allows this child to be herself. I feel like it's also... I can also see... I can see both arguments. I'm a Gemini. Um, uh, so the, the counter argument I would give to Pazuzu being a woman is that Pazuzu is depicted with an aggressive phallus. That doesn't necessarily mean it's not a woman. Generally, when you see something that is depicted with a phallus, we tend to gender it male. Um... Such a bigot. <laughs> Women can have penises too, Cody. I literally just said that. We have female friends with penises. Hi, Mark. Um... <laughs> That's so mean. <laughs> God damn it. I'm keeping that in. He's going to be so mad. Oh, no. I'm sorry, Jane. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, Mark. <laughs> no! Why would I apologize to Mark? <laughs> oh, shit. Alright. We're talking about Pazuzu's penis. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Also, I feel like you could definitely see this as an analogy for um, the battle over... So, I don't know how to phrase this. So, you could see this definitely as an analogy about the battle over a child becoming a woman because Reagan has just turned 12. Yes. Uh, all of the doctors and stuff that they go and see, they talk about, oh, this happens in the onset of puberty. This is something that can happen in puberty, et cetera, et cetera. And that's something I believe is more fleshed out in the book than it is in the movie, right? All the doctors and everything? Yes. There are a lot of like detailed explanations when they visit all of the specialists. Um, 
so that's actually something you can see that constantly like you pretty much every fucking um fairy tale that exists you can read an interpretation of it being about puberty and how men and i'm using men specifically because men are generally the ones that tended to write down and keep the fairy tales looking at you brothers grim um yeah what happened to the sisters grim <laughs> but there's a lot of fear about period blood, about menstrual blood, about blood of the vagina in general, which you can look at the fucking Jesus fucking her with the, or, uh, what's the I line? don't remember that scene. <laughs> what's the thing that he says when, um, he's making her stab herself in the vagina with the crucifix? Let Jesus, Let fuck, Jesus you. fuck you. Yeah. Um, that is very specifically evoking menstrual blood, even though he's forcing, literally forcing that, which, whoo, there's a whole lot of conversation about consent and rape in this. Yeah. Um, but it's ultimately, it, it feels like this is the, and I say this with a grain of salt because I'm not Catholic, uh, but this feels like it's a lot of Catholic anxiety over the woman as, as she is becoming a woman. Um, it's like who controls her body and it's like, oh, well it could be literally a demon or you can let the men of the church possess and control her body. Yeah. And that, so I can see that being the argument. Um, I think that's what people have said in the past about this. Basically that she still has no agency regardless. She is literally and figuratively a vessel because she is she is a vessel for her mother's anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, she is a vessel for the absence of her father. She is a vessel for all of Karis's anxieties and lack of, of faith. Um, I feel like the only person who sees her, and it's not even that he sees her, it's that he only sees Pazuzu, is Moran. Yeah, well, that's because he doesn't come in till. She's fully possessed. Yeah. But I mean, even if he would have come in earlier, he still would only have seen Pazuzu, you know? Right. Um, and so Reagan is kind of like a, forgive the not subtle metaphor, but like literally a ragdoll. <laughs> she is there to be moved around for plot purposes. Mm -hmm. And it's also like, she says what the problem is from the beginning. And it takes, even her mother doesn't listen to her because she's saying from the beginning, when she first gets possessed, um, she's saying, Captain Howdy is, um, he's chasing me, he's hurting me. She's been saying from the beginning. And I feel like there's also a conversation that can be had about um, when you have a child who's telling you something bad is happening and you're not listening because you're just like, oh, it's just, she's just making it up. It's just a little kid's game. It's It's almost treated... Like, the reverse a bit in the movie. Because there's less development, I feel like, in the film. Mm -hmm. It jumps from Reagan sleeping in her mom's bed because her bed was shaking too much. To, like, the next time we see her, she's getting these medical procedures done. Like, yeah. the moment she steps even remotely out of line, it's like, we need a doctor, something's fucking wrong. And it's it's kind of jarring in the movie. How quickly it, it, it progresses to that. So... I don't, the book is very specific about time, except for how long it takes for the actual exorcism to happen, um, and how long the process of the exorcism takes. 
there's a lot of because like her 12th birthday happens her dad fails to call her and then all of a sudden you get that's when everything starts to ramp up like that's the her mom has a party on like april 26th i think the oh. yeah the movie could take place over a week or a year it's so it's so unclear the beginning of the book is april um and the end of the book is june because reagan's birthday is mid-april the party where everything really kicks off is when she pisses on the floor yes uh is um april 26th and then everything like deteriorates from there um and they also spend three weeks in um, Ohio at a, a specific medical clinic. Um, because basically she's... What kills me is that also, like Reagan, um, Chris is yelling at all of these doctors from the beginning. And I'm sometimes literally yelling, but I'm also mean, I also mean in the metaphorical sense. She's telling them what's wrong. And they're not listening to her because they just see, oh, well, it's this. Uh, none of the tests came back positive. It's, it's still this. It's just we need another. We need to run more tests. Yeah, and like, it's so frustrating. Like it's part of the the tension in the movie, because yeah. like we we're seeing a movie called The Exorcist. We know where this shit's going. Right? Yeah, but the the pain of this woman just trying to get somebody to help her daughter. Yeah, and all the doctors are like, oh, it's got to be this thing in the brain. We just need to run a test. Well, it's negative, but take this and see if this helps. Try try Ritalin. Uh, try try this, try that. And then finally they're like, I mean, I guess you could try an exorcism, but it would just be like psychosomatic. It would just be a, be a thing. And then she goes to the priest, she goes to Karis, and he's like, nah, you need to see doctors. <laughs> yeah, that's actually something that is it's really interesting wild. that I appreciated about Karis's speech when he doesn't, because I think it's also illustrative of his character of being the doubting Thomas, mm -hmm. but also he, what he says is true. He's like, I don't want to be another person that's adding to the mythos of the Catholic church as abusing, not the Catholic church, cause he's not Catholic, he's Jesuit, but of the church as abusing these people that want, that are seeking help. And he also points out that there were tracks for exorcists as early as the 1500s saying, Hey, a lot of the people that, that you think they need exorcisms, they need a doctor. Yeah. Um, and I actually think that's one of the most interesting things, because, of course, we know as the as the reader and or viewer that this is actually a demon. But how much more interesting would it be if it were actually psychosomatic? Well, we, we know that as a viewer of the movie that it's actually a demon. Um, in my research, I did read that the book is a bit more ambiguous. It's like every everything she does, I read. Um, Karis has a medical example of the same thing happening to somebody. Yes, and I think that's the point. Is And that's even something that the demon talks to Karis about. is Because over and over again, he's struggling with his faith throughout the whole book. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, like, seeing... Um, I keep wanting to call him Dr. Moran. Uh, <laughs> the the <laughs> Reverend Father. Um, <laughs> Reverend Father Priest. <laughs> yes. Uh, seeing him and his, like, he describes it as a simple childlike faith and belief. 
it shakes him because he's like he even the demon taunts him as being like you can talk yourself out of everything like you yeah you just uh proved that i can speak latin but also if you can prove um if you can prove that i can speak latin you were asking me questions in latin then formulating the thoughts in your brain how do you know i didn't read your mind which also what the fuck esp is considered just a regular symptom of disorders oh like <laughs> like i uh i remember when i was a kid in church hearing that like Oh, yeah, like, witchcraft and ESP and this shit is real, but it's evil. <laughs> like, that was taught to me at a young age. Um, but I also, I brought this up to you, um, and I figured you would know this because, you know, you're a PK. Yeah. <laughs> sure am. But the whole, they bring up Legion, mm-hmm. I think, three times. Or they bring it up specifically twice. And, um, the third time is an illusion, um, with an illusion with an A. Yeah. Um, so the first time is when he's reading the, t- the tape is going backwards and he talks about, uh, he hears the backwards message saying, I am no one, I am Legion. Um, and then the second time is when he's talking to either Moran or Dyer and they bring up the story of um is that luke one of the lukes <laughs> one of the lukes uh the the story of the demon legion yes in the bible i believe it's in luke yeah where he like begs to be cast into pigs and then tossed yeah they jesus cast in the sea yeah um so that story is brought up um uh, so it may actually be three because there may be a, a time where he talks to dyer about it and then he um karis also uh it's brought up by um Moran, when he's mentioning that he has met this demon before, they are legion, whatever. Uh, which also, even the priest can respect the fucking uh, they-them pronouns of a goddamn demon. What's your excuse, Republicans? Oh, the, oh, the Catholic priests don't respect those pronouns anymore. <laughs> <laughs> they have regressed. Um... So, I don't remember where I was going with that. Uh, Something about Legion. Oh, yes. The final thing is that the final sacrifice of Karis, where he finally snaps. And I think it's really interesting because everyone around him, all the other priests and stuff are so happy. And, like, they're not happy per se, but they're kind of, like, irreverent and, like... um, Nonchalant? Yeah. Um, And he's, like quietly deeply struggling with his own faith and everyone around him seems to have it so easy and then he runs into moran and moran is just like solid and firm in his faith and finally the like desecration of moran is what gets him to snap and he taps into his own rage and that's what gives him the strength to finally defeat pazuzu Mm -hmm. which is so interesting because you've got um Pazuzu's rage, which is essentially impotent because he's just menacing a child. Yeah. Um, you've got the rage of Karis, which is kind of, you see it throughout the book. Like, sometimes he'll have flashes of anger and then he'll kind of reel it back. He's like, nope, I have to be nice to these people because I'm a priest and that's what you do. And he finally, when he does finally let it go, that's where he finds that wellspring of power within himself. Um, so I think it's a very interesting conversation about, like, the use of, um, 
rage and how that feels in in faith and how there is a place for righteous anger. It's it's interesting because that was actually a dividing point um, when the movie came out. Um, the reception to this movie is the stuff of lore, right? Like, people know more about how this movie was received and marketed and the aftermath of this movie coming out than they know about the movie at times. Mm -hmm. um, there was a joke. It was either a joke or a newspaper article or something I read about where someone went to, or was a, I think it was a newspaper cartoon, and somebody's at the box office, like, two for The Exorcist, and the clerk at the box office says, oh, we're all sold out, but we can sell you tickets to the lobby to watch the audience. Like, <laughs> it was such a, a thing. Um, and so many people assumed that the Catholic Church was against this movie. Um, I have a quote here from Friedkin himself. One of the best things that could happen is if the Pope denounces it. <laughs> Great quote. Oh, <laughs> uh, rest in power, Friedkin. But, but the wild thing is, oh, I've got some fucking shit about Friedkin later. Uh, the wild thing is a lot of people internally in the Catholic Church were like, no, nah, this is kind of faith affirming. Because at the end, like, good triumphs over evil. But there were still some people in the church who saw his act of um, self-sacrifice at the end as demons winning. Like, Which is interesting because, you know, the whole faith is founded on someone sacrificing themselves. Yeah. It's, <laughs> what's that book called where that dude uh, dies on the cross? Uh, fucking, Last Temptation of Christ. Um, <laughs> I was going to say the New Testament. Yeah, as, uh, as Will Willem Dafoe taught us in a future episode. <laughs> no, I'm not reading the Bible. <laughs> no, you have to read the Bible. You have to read the book, The Last Temptation of Christ. But um, as Willem Dafoe taught us, I'm not mentioning the other guy. Um, you know, like, sacrifice is a huge part of the Christian faith. And, like, martyrdom, martyrdom is a huge part of the Christian faith. Almost a, a uh, in my opinion, a gross and bad part of the Christian faith now because modern evangelicals just want to be martyrs. Um, but it's such like a, I will sacrifice myself for Jesus mentality. You won't even wear a mask in the grocery store. Shut up, Exactly. Stacey. Exactly. Um... But it's wild to me that some people can see this moment of self-sacrifice and go, oh no, he's weak and he succumbed to the demon and he got thrown out a window. Like the, the as I called it, the Casablanca ending of the movie, uh, which was added in 2000 and I think is on most cuts of it now. It's uh, how the book ends. It is how the book ends? Yes. Okay, thank you for answering my question before I asked. <laughs> um, it ends with uh, Father Dyer and uh, what's the cop's name? I didn't even write it down. It's the detective... Detective Kinderman? Yeah, Kinderman. Yes. I think. Um, they they have their, hey, let's go see a movie sometime ending. Yeah. Beginning of a beautiful friendship ending. like Which was designed to tell the audience, hey, things are ending well. The demon is gone. The child's going to be okay. Until the next five sequels. It's actually... I really liked that ending because the whole time... Um, the detective was reaching out for human connection. He was trying to find that human connection with um, Karis, and he couldn't. Because mm -hmm. Karis kept being like, no, I, I can't. He kept putting up a wall. Exactly. And it, there were reasons for it. Like, in the beginning, he's like, why are you, you're just being weird. Why are you doing this? And then, after the reveal, where he realizes that Reagan is the one who killed um, the guy, Reagan is the one who killed the um, person the detective is trying to solve the murder the of. The director. Yes. 
uh, after he realizes Reagan is the one who has murdered the director, he puts up that wall because he's like, I can't let him know that I know this. Mm-hmm. Um, but he... Dyer, on the opposite side, is trying to do the same thing and um, connect with Karis on an emotional human level as well. Yeah, because they're the ones that talk about... Uh, I believe it's a conversation with Dyer when Karis reveals that he's... He might be losing his... No... No, that that conversation with somebody else. Never mind. Um, yeah, Dyer is Dyer is definitely but, aware. But of Dyer it. Dyer's the one who um helps him out when he's grieving when his mother passes. Correct. Yes. Yeah. 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 He's the one who uh, I think he steals a bottle of like fancy scotch, like not even fancy, but like mid to high self scotch. Is it implied <laughs> that he steals that from Chris? Because that's hilarious. If so, because he's at her. No, party. no, no, no. He steals it from the uh, dean. Of the University uh, of Georgetown. Okay. Um, so, both of them have been trying to connect with Karis, and it's only when Karis finally lets go that they find that connection with each other. Yeah. And it's kind of... You know what? You know the movie It's a Wonderful Life? I'm familiar. <laughs> it's of kind it. of like, oh, if he died, everyone's life actually got better? <laughs> Because Karis's sacrifice does actually lead to an improvement in the circumstances of literally everyone. Yeah. Well, maybe not the director. He sucked. It's fine. He was a drunk. He was a gin drunk. He was a drunk and he was also an asshole. Yeah. He's hitting on Chris. Ugh. And Regan noticed it. I thought he was gay in the audiobook. So I thought watching the movie that the detective was gay. There's a lot of... Like, it felt like there was some queer subtext in, in that. It wouldn't surprise me, because that's actually something that's in the text, is that... Not that the detective is gay, um, but that the... There's a lot of, like, undercurrent of latent homosexuality and, like, the fear of it. Yeah. when Karis is still the counselor, he actually has a kid come to him and is like, Hey, man... I'm real lonely because I'm afraid that the other guys are going to think I'm queer if I try to become friends with them. That is very barely a a, a summary of what he says. He uses the word queer. It's, it's wild how toxic masculinity just makes it harder to be a guy. Yeah, I sure I don't want is. them to think I'm gay, so I guess I just can't have friends then. <laughs> um, yeah. So... Something else that uh, I want to bring up is Jude Doyle actually did, I don't know whether it was a a Substack post, which it's now defunct. Um, It may also be their newsletter. Um, They actually did a, and I'm sorry, I'm not sure if their pronouns are they or he. Um, I'm going to stick with they for the moment. Um, They actually wrote a, a column about the exorcist and talked about like its reception um, that I remember being very good and very insightful. And it's interesting because it's coming from, of course, the point of view of a trans man, he, him, or they, them. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, I recommend all their work, by the way, they're very fun. Yes. Um, I'm trying to think if there's, so, uh, while you're thinking uh, a quote from the movie that I thought, was darkly hilarious in retrospect. The first time a de- the demon sees a priest, they say, 
Stick your cock up her ass, you motherfucking worthless cocksucker. Did Blatty know anything about the Catholic Church and its um history, I feel shall like, we say? I feel like everyone knew about the Catholic Church. It was a very In the seventies? It was a very poorly kept secret. Among, it didn't go public public till like the nineties. Until spotlight and stuff. Yeah. But I feel like it's one of those things where it's kinda like the Louis C.K. thing where if you're in the community, you know. Yeah. But also there's a lot of like just so this movie is famous for the sexual perversity, right? Yes. Um, there was a whole kerfuffle after it came out. It got an R rating, right? And this is early MPAA. There's no PG-13. So getting an R means kids shouldn't see this. Kids were still allowed to see it with an adult, but kids shouldn't see this. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, this should have had an X. <laughs> Why the fuck? Even with their parents, are kids allowed to see it? There are multiple cities that would, like, threaten to arrest theater staff if children got into the theater to see it. Um, It was, like, banned in a few countries for that. Uh, There were theories abound that because it was Warner and it was a big budget production, like, they influenced the MPAA to give it the R. And if it was an indie film, it would have gotten the X. That was a very big deal. Okay, I'm going to preface this, I'm going to preface my next statement by saying I grew up in the Wild West internet of the 90s and early aughts. Mm -hmm. Um, I have been writing and reading fan fiction since I was nine years old. Um, I didn't think this was that bad. Yeah, uh, like, (laughs) (laughs) that's why I said earlier, I think my dad's kind of a bitch. Because I grew up on that same internet. I'm familiar with things like... Two girls, one cup. Goatsy. The Pain Olympics. Oh, the Pain Olympics. Boy. One guy, one jar. Or is it one man, one jar? And either way, it's it's what it was. It's what it was. <laughs> I was exposed to these things at probably too young an age. Fucking 30s, too young an age. So, what is very clearly fake on screen, the masturbation scene... Yeah. I thought it was kind of funny. Not like in a, oh, she's masturbating with a cross kind of way, but in a like... Like, oh, that's cute. Oh, they thought, like, people were leaving the theater vomiting over this. They thought that was blasphemy. The 70s were wild. Like, in <laughs> in context, yes, I'm sure that was horrifying. Like, you oh, had, yeah. They, like, if you go back far enough, you had children that had to... They had to change the, the upholstery in the theater where Snow White was performed. Like, or where Snow White was first shown. Like, it was genuinely terrifying. Yeah, like, there, there are benchmarks in film history of, like, things are changing. Yes. So, like, I do understand to yeah. a 70s audience, this yeah. movie is fucking shocking. Especially, we're not too far removed from the Hays Code. Yeah. So, a doctor saying the word cunt on screen in an American picture in 1973, that alone would have shocked some people. Hell, now that would shock my mother. (laughs) Sorry, Jane. (laughs) Apologies for the language. Um... But now, like, I was not alive in 73. I first saw this movie in the last 10 years after seeing things like Saw. You know? Like, there was a whole era of American horror 
film called Torture Porn. Yeah. This is nothing compared to what they put on screen then. Like, it's one of those things where if you think about it in an, in isolation, like, yes, the idea of stabbing yourself in any body part, especially a body part as sensitive as the vagina... I wouldn't know. ...is horrifying. But... We're also kind of desensitized. Yeah. Like, we're not that far removed from The Thing, either. And that level of body horror and Cronenbergian nightmare. The Thing was nine years later, I think. Yeah. Like, and that goes to... Like, that one actually skeeves me out a little bit more than the masturbation scene in The Exorcist. I feel like it's And I think it's because the masturbation scene is so quick. And, like, there's only, like, one shot where you actually see her from the front during the action... And there's so much blood covering it, there's nothing, like, to see. Well, oh, I guess the blood's kind of the point, isn't it? But um, it, it plays almost worse in your mind than it does on screen because of what she's yelling while she's doing it. Yeah. And I actually wanted to ask about that because I didn't catch this when I watched it. Does she tell her mom to lick her? She tells somebody to. I'm not sure if it's her mom or not. It In the... In the book, she grabs her mom and shoves her mom's face into her bloody vagina and says, lick me. She definitely says, lick me in the movie. She does not grab a face or shove it in. Oh, okay. And I forget who's in the room with her, but it's her mom and one or two other people. Yeah, in the book, it's her mom and Carl and possibly also Sharon or Shannon, whichever. I think that's who it is, yeah. So she is probably yelling that at her mom. But yeah, uh... In the context of 1973, I understand how that would be shocking. We also have to add on to the fact that this movie had initially a limited release before it went wide. Mm-hmm. And so much of the release was hype. It was, this is going to shock you. This is terrifying. The Catholic Church condemns it. Like, that's the stuff that was going on beforehand. So, in all that context... It's understandable how audiences reacted the way they did at the time. I think... Okay, so this was 73? 73. When did Silence of the Lambs come out? 1991. Okay, so that is a little bit later, because yeah. Silence of the Lambs is much worse, I think. Silence of the Lambs is closer to this movie than we are to Silence of the Lambs. I hate that. Thank I know. You. I know. <laughs> I do, too. Um, I, I personally think Silence of the Lambs is much worse. Yeah, and even that... Didn't really... Maybe I'm just, like, fucking desensitized to it. Which, you know, brings me to a quote. Uh, Roger Ebert. Oh, okay. Had this quote. Um, I'm not sure exactly what reasons people will have for seeing this movie. Surely enjoyment won't be one. (laughs) Are people so numb they need movies of this intensity in order to feel anything at all? Roger. I mean, that dude was like, torture porn's coming 30 years before torture porn came. Did did he ever do a revised review, or is this his? I'm sure he did. Okay, I'm I'm sure he did. I can grab great movies. It's probably <laughs> probably in there. So, part of the reason that we chose to do The Exorcist was because of the director, because he had just passed. Billy Friedkin, and of course, my first choice was Sorcerer, which is based on the novel The Wages of Fear. And The Wages of Fear is one of my all-time faves, uh, so I really wanted an excuse. But 
We did find one copy of that book and it was $60. Not happening. Yeah. Unless somebody <laughs> wants to send us 60 bucks, we're not doing Sorcerer yet. Uh, so we came to this. So I do have a couple stories about uh, the uh, Good adaptation. Good old Billy Freakin'. Let's talk about the adaptation as a whole first. Can I Can I just say some of the things that I know? Go for it. Or some of the like half-truths, myths that I know? Yes. Um, so the person who did Pazuzu's voice was a woman. Yes. Uh, she smoked aggressively in order to obtain that voice, and I think it damaged her voice permanently. Probably, but smoking will do that regardless. Um, oh, I thought she spoke specifically for Oh, I didn't read, I didn't read that today, but I have heard that in the past. Um, for reference, there's a, uh, a show, it was on Shudder, called Cursed Films. And I think episode one was The Exorcist, and it goes into some of these details. Um, the actress that played Reagan, uh, Linda I, Blair. Yes, Linda Blair. Um, she suffered multiple injuries to her spine and shoulders as a result of the rigs used to do the um, shaking and flipping and her little dancies in the bed. Yep. Um, don't I think those are the big ones. I know that like. I don't know if it was a permanent injury, but I know like she suffered some pretty severe injuries to her spine. So I have a whole section in my notes called Cursed. <laughs> okay, those are the two that I can think of off the top of my head. Because legendarily, this movie was Cursed. Um, here are some of the things that are examples of the curse. A bird flew into a circuit breaker on the house set, uh, set fire to all of the rooms except for Regan's room, caused a six-week delay in filming. Oh, boy. Um, the 10-foot statue of Pazuzu was accidentally shipped to Hong Kong instead of Iraq. That's a two-week delay. Uh, when Reagan slaps her mom across the room, the take used in the film, Ellen Burstyn fractured her coccyx on that. Oh. Uh, she had to be, on, I think, on crutches the rest of the shoot. Linda Blair fractured her lower spine on the uh, rocking bed set. Oh. Um, that led to, I believe, scoliosis in her. She also has, like, a lifetime aversion to cold because the room, during the exorcism scene, uh, you can see everyone's breath. They brought in a $50,000 refrigeration unit to make it negative 20 in that room. And they didn't give her any... She's in a nightgown. Yep. They could only shoot for three minutes at a time because once they turned on the lights, it would heat up and the breath wouldn't be visible again. Ah. So that kind of fucked her up long term. Uh, there was a carpenter who cut off his thumb... A lighting technician lost a toe. The guy who played Dennings died a week after shooting. The woman who played Mrs. Karras died before production completed. There, also, she was only referenced in the... Yeah. Oh, no, never mind. Sorry. She is shown. Um, there are multiple other members of the crew who died during production, including a night watchman and the operator of that refrigeration unit. Uh, Linda Blair's grandfather died during production, as did Mox von Sydow's... Mox? John Moxley. Yeah. Max von Sydow's brother also died, like, I think the first day he was on set. Uh, who, I'm sorry, Max... Max von Sydow was, um, uh, the other, Father of Marin. Oh, okay. Um, Miller, uh, Karis's son, Jason Patrick, was hit by a motorcycle and almost died during production. You may know Jason Patrick from his, uh, seminal role in Speed 2 Cruise Control. Oh, God. Um, the... Doctor in one of the hospital scenes, I believe it's specifically the scene where they run the tube into her neck. Um, they got real medical personnel to do that scene, to do it as medically medically accurate as possible. And one of those doctors in that scene later killed a journalist. Neat. Yeah. 
And of course, uh, uh, William Peter Blatty has his own theory about this cursed film and that all of this was disseminated by Warner to hype up the fucking production. And he's like, yeah, we were on set for a year. People are gonna die. <laughs> I was gonna say, like, the crew... Like, I think somebody brought up, like, Linda Blair's pet mouse died. And he's like, oh, come on. I'm the curse. <laughs> like, he was having fucking none of it. Um, We mentioned Linda Blair in the cast, Ellen Burstyn. A lot of the names in this cast were relatively unknown at the time. Um, and that was intentional. They did have bigger names in mind for some of these roles. Uh, Chris McNeil, played by Ellen Burstyn. Other names they had in mind were Audrey Hepburn, Anne Bancroft, Jane Fonda, Shirley MacLaine, and Carol Burnett. Carol Burnett would have been interesting. It's so out of type for her, but that would have made it work. But the thing is, the role that... I think Carol Burnett was the studio's choice. Do you know the role that she's playing, uh, Chris is playing, the reason why they're in D.C.? She's doing, like... You only see the one scene in the movie, and she's trying to, like, quell a student rebellion by telling them to work within the system, and that just pissed me off. So that is... That is not what she's doing. Okay. (laughs) She is actually supposed to be leading the rebellion. Okay. Uh, they are doing a musical adaptation of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. What the fuck? And she's playing the love interest. Oh my god, that's so stupid. I'm so glad that was she like... She thinks it's stupid in the book. It's oh, the yeah. point is that this is fucking stupid. In the movie, too, she's like, can we, like, why? And the director's like, well, let me get the writer? He's in Rome. Like... <laughs> yeah. Um, so... I can see casting a Carol Burnett because that's the type of actress that they're trying to portray. Mm-hmm. Um, I could also see Shirley MacLaine. I would love to see Shirley MacLaine in this. I think she's so talented. The rest of the women you listed, I think they're too... They, you need someone that's a little gritty, and I feel like the rest of them are too clean. Audrey Hepburn did that one movie... I gotta look it up because I can't remember what it's called. Um, where she played the blind woman. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And like her apartment was getting broken into. Yes. And that movie was brilliant. Was that Wait Until Dark? Possibly. Wait Until Dark. That movie's incredible, and she did that six years prior to this. Okay. So I do see Audrey Hepburn being able to pull this off as well. I mean, it's Audrey Hepburn. She could fucking do whatever she wanted to do. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, I just, she would not be my first guess. Shirley McLean. I would go to Shirley McLean, probably. Sure. Uh, Damien Carius was played by Jason Miller. Um, Other names considered? Jack Nicholson? No. Paul Newman. They do keep talking about how he looks like Marlon Brando. In the movie, they say he looks like a boxer. And he looks like you bought Rocky Balboa from Wish. Yeah. He (laughs) He really does. Yeah, that's something. That's a running joke is that he looks like a boxer. And they actually hired Stacey Keach to play the role. Um, I'm looking up some of his other roles because I neglected to do this earlier. (laughs) Uh, They hired him to portray it. And then um, when they found Jason Miller, they ended up buying out Keach's contract and giving the role to Miller. That makes sense. Um, you have Google listening. You can look up what Stacey Keach has done. Uh, 
Reagan was played by Linda Blair in yes. her most iconic role, which it's got to suck to have your career peak at age 12. But she, like, is, she's one of the, like, original Scream Queens. Speaking of, the original Scream Queen, um, Janet Lee. Yes. Refused to let her daughter, Jamie Lee Curtis, audition for the role. That was probably a good, a good thing, actually. You're not wrong. I just love that she was almost here. Yeah. Uh, the other name was Denise Nickerson, who we will talk about in a future episode. She played Violet Beauregard in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Or Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, excuse me. The good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, like I said before, Max von Sydow played Lancaster Marion. Um, they also considered Marlon Brando for that role. No, absolutely fucking not. Yeah. So here's a controversial opinion of mine. Marlon Brando can stay the fuck away from movies. I think he was fine when he was young. The only role I don't mind him in is The Godfather. The Godfather, I feel like on the waterfront. He's, yeah, okay. Yeah, he's fine and on the waterfront. It's not my favorite movie. Because he's an abrasive asshole. Yeah. But like... <laughs> Streetcar, absolutely not. Get the fuck out of here. He's, he's doing a stage performance on, on film and it doesn't fucking work. And I know that that performance is lauded, and he's considered, like, the greatest of all time. It's... Stay on stage. He's great on stage. Do your shit on stage. Stay away from fucking movies. You're yes. Too, you're too big. He's too big. And then he gave up halfway through his career. And like I said, like, The Godfather, he puts in a good performance, but that's because all he has to do is sit there and mumble. <laughs> and that was his own decision, was to shove cotton balls in his mouth so he could mumble through the fucking movie. That's some anti-Italian racism. And then he went and did, like, Apocalypse Now, he showed up overweight to set and just, like, asked to die. That's all he did in that movie. There's a reason he's barely fucking in it. And then, don't get me started on the island of Dr. Moreau, because that's its own episode coming down the fucking pike. Speaking of, uh, speaking of overweight, was there any fat phobia in the, um movie not that i recall there is some weird fat phobia in the book directed at the detective i can see the shadows of it when the detective first meets karis karis is running laps yes but other than that that is the same thing but they go out of the way to talk about how he wheezes and waddles and how it's very difficult for him to walk any distance. And I'm like, did this is not necessary. Yeah. What, what does that add? It adds nothing. Yeah. Um, the only other member of cast that I wrote down was Father Dyer, who was played by Father William O'Malley. <laughs> of course he was. They got an actual priest to play that role, which makes it extra funny when you get to some of the shit that William Friedkin was doing on set. Oh, William, what did you do? So in that climactic scene, when Karis sacrifices himself, gets thrown out the window. Okay, is he thrown out the window or does he throw himself out the window? He is he is defenestr defenestrated by a force. In the book, it is made specific that he throws himself out the window, which is, I, sorry, I distracted myself from my point like an hour ago. Um <laughs> He throws himself out the window, and it's a reference. It feels like an homage or a callback to the le the death of the the Legion. Right, pigs. because Legion goes into the pigs and they cast themselves in the sea. Yes, that's a good bring it around. Yes. Um, in the movie, it's not as clear, but he like it's not clear if it's him doing it or the demon doing it. Right. Yeah. Um. So 
moments after that, as he's breathing his last breath, Fire Di- Father Dyer comes to his side, grabs him by the hand, reads him his last rites. Oh, he rites. does get to do his last rites. He okay. does the last rites, right? Friedkin didn't like how uh, William O'Malley was doing the scene. So he slapped a priest in front of a very Catholic cast and crew. Sir! <laughs> to get the performance he wanted out of it. Sir! <laughs> To what end? A great performance. It looks great on screen. <laughs> That's like a special level of hell. No. With all the other Catholic priests. No, the special level of hell was when he was running around with a pistol filled with blanks to just shoot it willy-nilly to get people scared on set. William! <laughs> Particularly during um, scenes with the doctors when uh, Reagan like, freaks out. And... Uh, the doctors that make the house call, specifically. Mm-hmm. And uh, Karis, when she's doing her demon shit um, to get that fear reaction. He would just fucking fire a gun on set. Sir, that is like 18 levels of OSHA safety violations. I thought, I thought this is one of the things you would have known about. No! <laughs> Bear in mind, this is before The Crow. Yeah, I was gonna say, so, is this pre or post the crow? This is pre the crow, so it's it's it wasn't as frowned upon. It was still frowned upon. Now, is it pre or post the Twilight Zone? Pre. Twilight Zone would have been eighty. Ah. Um. The other fun thing he did the pea soup. Does the pea soup hit Karis in the face in the book? We talked about this while you were still reading. I don't think so. I think. He. I say pea soup. I'm of course referring to the vomit. Yes. Um. I believe no one gets vomited in the face. Uh. They get a lot of spit. There's a lot of very dis- a lot of very luscious descriptions of gobs of mucus hitting people in the face. Okay. That makes this even funnier. Uh. In rehearsals for that infamous scene in the movie, the pea soup gun is aimed at Karis's chest. But for the take. <laughs> Tilt that up about 25 degrees right in the face. Gotta get that authentic reaction from your actors. Oh, that's horrifying. He was a disaster on this set. Like, there are stories of um, him, like, going back and reshooting things weeks later because he just didn't like how they looked in dailies. Like, the the shoot went, I think... three times or two or three times over the expected length of the shoot and way over budget as well because he would he would spend like this was going around on uh, Twitter the other day when Friedkin died and it, he spent a whole day setting up the shot of Marin coming out of the taxi and entering that home and I mean you can tell that time was put into that shot because it's like that's what I'm looking for. Iconic. iconic. It's iconic. I almost said authentic. It's that too. Iconic. <laughs> um, it's such an iconic shot, but he spent a whole day on that one shot and then got it in one take, which is badass. But working on a set, that's got to be draining. Like not knowing how many times you're going to have to do something, not knowing if you're going to have to go back to it, working in negative 20 degrees on a refrigerated set. Like, he might have been the curse. 
Um, I, I mean, was he try? Did he take the advice? Did he take the portrayal of Burke Dennings in the book as a fucking like model to look up to? Maybe. No. That guy deserved to die. He he wasn't even the studio's first choice. I actually wrote this down too. Arthur Penn and Stanley Kubrick were both in talks. Kubrick would be interesting, but I feel like it would be too sanitized. Like, I... mm, He had just done Clockwork Orange. Had he done The Shining yet? No. But I think Kubrick's vision of this would have been very interesting to see. Yeah. I don't know if it would be better or worse. It would definitely be different. I feel like it would be a lot more unsettling. Like, there would be an air of unreality through the whole thing that you don't necessarily have through this one. Yeah. Which I think, I actually think that the the grounding in the real world, so when you go into the heightened states, actually works really well. And that's why Friedkin worked for this so much. And that is one of the biggest uh, positives of his directing that I've read in Critiques of the Time, was that he brought a realism to it. This is a movie set in Washington, D.C. that has nothing to do with politics. Like, that doesn't happen. Like, this was... He wanted to shoot with authentic lighting wherever possible. He made sure his sets had what a real house would have, mirrors and reflective surfaces. It made it harder to light, but it meant he had to work with that. And it it adds that realism to the movie. Um, He almost didn't get the... I almost said part. He almost didn't get hired as director but the french connection did really well which he had previously directed that's and that also was like realism one of the people running away from each other through the subway right the like really famous scene that's like a long chase scene i think maybe no or am i confusing it with something else i think you might be confusing it with something else okay but i'm not sure it's been it's been a minute since i've seen french connection um I had one other note I want to talk about. And this is wild to me. This is something I've never heard before. Most of the rest of what we've talked about, I've heard bits and bobs over the years. Did you know that this movie helped end black exploitation film? Um, pardon? <laughs> so, in the 70s, six, late 60s and early 70s, uh, theaters in African-American neighborhoods, like read South Central L.A., would get movies starring in about black people. Okay. When this movie came out, people in droves were coming from South Central to Westwood to see The Exorcist. At Westwood, if you're not familiar with L.A. geography, is a very white, affluent neighborhood in L.A. South Central is South Central L.A. <laughs> They were coming in droves, and the studio noticed and was like, wait a minute. We can sell this to black people, too? All right. And it was the first time major studios stopped relying on black exploitation films for an African-American market. Wild. Right? Similar things were happening in New York, too. Like, people were coming out of Harlem into, I think, the Upper East Side or the Upper West Side, whichever is the white one. I don't know New York geography as well. <laughs> um, they were doing the same thing there to, to see this movie. And reason being is there's a lot of religious 
affectations to the movie. Like, it's a, it's a movie based around yeah. organized religion, and that is a huge thing in a lot of black communi- uh, communities, especially in New York at the time, Haitian communities, um, other Caribbean oh, communities, yeah. because of uh, elements of voodoo and witchcraft, that kind of thing. And I'm quoting things that I read today. These are not personal opinions. I apologize <laughs> if I said anything crossing any lines here. Um... But yeah, like it's it is a major influence towards the ending of Black Exploitation. Huh. Fucking okay. <laughs> this movie of all fucking movies. Right? It was it was a big fucking deal when it came out. Like a big deal. It was the first horror movie nominated for Best Picture. It huh. it won Best Screenplay. Okay. So Blatty has an Oscar. Alright, Blatty. Um it, I think it's the highest grossing horror movie until it in 2017. Really? And I think the highest. None. Okay. No. Yeah. What else? Silence of the Lambs? Or is that considered a thriller? No, that's considered a horror. I, I, but The Exorcist ran for two years in theaters. Fair. This is pre-home video, pre-street, like pre-all of that. This was in theaters for two fucking years. And they started on 40 screens. <laughs> in like I think 21 metropolitan areas and it, it became this phenomenon like it didn't get released until like 75 in like abroad in some countries I think England didn't get it till 74 but it came out the 26th of December it's a Christmas movie it's a Christmas movie <laughs> that's why it's so cold it's Christmas it's not it's an Easter movie <laughs> they don't mention that in the movie no, this was this was a huge deal. I think it was the highest grossing rated R movie for like 10 or 12 years, something like that. That is wild. Yeah, this was a phenomenon when it came out. This movie being as huge as it was and as influential as it was. I think it's overrated. I also, don't recommend the book unless you really wanna. I feel weird whispering this, but like I feel like I have to because I don't <laughs> want film nerds jumping on me for this. <laughs> but like, it. The first time I tried to watch it, I got bored and didn't finish it. I sit through garbage. You really do regularly. Yeah. And it is rare, very. Very rare for me to start a movie and not finish it. I don't think I've ever seen you do it. The only other times I can think of are like, if I start something on an airplane and the flight ends. Yeah. But like by your choice, I don't think I've ever seen you start and not finish a movie, even yeah. if it's garbage. Yeah, I'll still, I'll still roll. I'll watch to the end of the credits on anything. There are aspects of this movie that are brilliant. The special effects in this movie are fucking brilliant. The music, the score, is, I hesitate to use the word iconic again, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Instantly identifiable? No, 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 no. It's, it's, a, it's like a, it's set like a new benchmark. It's set a new bar for horror score because of its use of, uh, like, atonal harmonies and i think the main theme is in like a seven eight or a nine eight like something like a little off you don't get halloween without having this movie exactly like john carpenter doesn't write that score if this score didn't happen first 
Um, there are so many elements of this movie. Like, I think a lot of the performances are good. Linda Blair is fucking stellar in this movie. Yeah. She's, she is a godsend in this movie. Pun not intended. <laughs> Ellen Burstyn is great in this movie. Um, Miller is great as Karis. I can't think of a bad performance. I don't think the writing is that strong. It... And I think that's where it suffers. Because there are, there are jumps that the movie makes, like I alluded to earlier, when we see Reagan and she's complaining about her bed moving, and then the next time we see her, she's getting hospital tests done to try and figure out what's wrong with her. I didn't think anything was wrong with her. I thought she was a kid who heard a bump in the night and got scared. That's not medical testing territory. I need more. I need reason. Like, is, is it ever explained in the book why Pazuzu chooses her? No. Okay. So, like, my... You know how we have the running theme or theory that um, every movie, every piece of media is about grief? Yes. Everyone around Reagan is grieving. And Reagan is also grieving in some way. In Karis, he has the obvious recent loss of his mother. With... Um, uh, Chris, the dissolution of her marriage. And then the loss of her boss. Yes. Um, with Reagan, you have the same thing. It's the loss of her parents, um, the relationship that she was used to with both of her parents. And it's also implied that her dad is basically absent and out of the picture now. Exactly. Like, he contacts her a couple times, but it's not, like, he doesn't, he doesn't do a lot. Yeah. Um, and... It's very much, the implication is that Pazuzu chooses Reagan because she is a convenient target because he knows that, he knows that picking her up or choosing her will negatively affect and cause despair to spread among all of the people around her. And his goal isn't necessarily to kill her, like his goal is absolutely to kill her. But it didn't really matter that it was her. He could have picked someone else. It's it's the idea that it's a... Because this is in the film as well. Um, Marin mentions it. That choosing her, choosing someone so young and innocent, it's, it's akin to uh, the beginning of the movie Final Destination. <laughs> when he gets on the plane and there's like a baby and I think there's some nuns. And it's like, only an evil god would take down this plane or something. Like, there's a line like that. It's like, it's akin to that. Like, it, it, it's there for despair. But, like, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm a modern audience. I'm expecting, like, oh, the medallion that he finds in Iraq somehow winds up at their house. The most that I think happens is that by digging up this site, he has unleashed Pazuzu in some way. And it just happens to pick this random child in Washington, D.C. There is a something about how Pazuzu is the god of the southeast wind or southwest wind. And there's a southwestern wind that blows over during a particularly taut or fraught moment. You know what? That's more than the movie gives us. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's and, and like I was saying, it's, the writing is what sells this movie short. I think the other thing is that Pazuzu specifically wants Mur, uh, Moran. And he knows that ultimately he is going to get Moran if he possesses Reagan. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's one of those, like, chess ten steps ahead, but none of that is made explicit. It's all implied. Yeah, and, and not even, at least in the movie, not even implied that well. 
Like the fact that we talked about this for an hour and a half almost now, and we're just coming to the realization of this. Yeah. We shouldn't, like, I don't need movies to club me over the head with things, but sometimes yeah. you can be too subtle. Yeah. I, the book is fine. Um, it has fully fucked up my Audible recommendations. Oh, boy. Um, but, I mean, I I also say this as someone who horror is not my favorite. I do enjoy certain horror. Um, it's, if you want to read and experience it, it's not bad. Um, it actually did a neat thing where there's a letter that's read by Reagan and it actually brings in a child to read it. Um, and towards the end, when they're actually in the exorcism, they have a small child, uh, a, a little girl singing a Catholic hymn mm-hmm. in Latin in the background. Is, this is specifically that audiobook on Audible. Yes, this is specifically that audiobook on Audible. It's the 40th edition read by uh, William Peter Blatty. Um, it's not bad, but it's not something that I'm going to revisit. Yeah. Like, I've already listened to Jurassic Park again, because I enjoyed that so much. <laughs> this, again, bear in mind that I, I am not the target audience for horror. I don't seek it out. It's fine. Yeah, and I think that's... I think that's where I land on the movie. It's it's fine. Out of Out of the context in which it came out, out of the hype machine surrounding it in its initial release... Outside of the cursed film rumors and the revisits and the analysis of that stuff, as a movie, just in a vacuum, I think it's fine. There are some great elements. There are some not-so-great elements. A resounding eh. Eh. I'm going to get sacrificed for that. I'm going to get crucified for that. (laughs) So, I think we're about done here. I think we are. So, William, you want to know what we're going to be doing for the next couple pods? So, I have been seeing a lot of advertisements on the television lately. Our old friend, Hercule Poirot, (laughs) Kenny Branagh, (laughs) our old friend, Kenny Branagh, has a new Agatha Christie adaptation coming out. Oh, it's going to be great. In about a month's time. It comes out, I believe, on September 15th. I believe you are correct, yes. So in two weeks to warm up for it, let's go to his first one. Murder on the Orient Express. Murder me on the Orient not want to watch this movie. (laughs) Oh god, I hope they did this one in the 70s. They have to have done this one in the 70s, right? Like, So I can at least see a decent adaptation as well. I am sure they did. I know they didn't do... Oh, they might have done the... Because as we, as we discovered, The Haunting in Venice wasn't called that. Correct. It is called Halloween Party. <laughs> Do you have to pronounce it like that? Yes, because there's an apostrophe in it. Because the fucking British. What's the apostrophe for? Like, what letter goes in there? Uh, it's it's uh, <laughs> shortening evening, I believe. That's lame. Yeah. Because it's All Hallows' Eve. and Halloween. It kind of got squished. <laughs> yes. Um, like, I'm sure all nuance will in both of these upcoming movies. Yes, we'll talk about that one later, but uh, your homework until next time. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to be doing uh, Murder on the Orient Express. Of course, we're going to focus on the Brana adaptation. I will also find any other ones 
to <laughs> Dear cleanse God, please my let me watch any other ones. <laughs> please, please. So I will have a del- I will have a lovely and delightful time reading more Agatha Christie. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> eh, fuck you. 